Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Beaumont. And I'm Paul Duncan. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with us on social media by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com. And if you believe in the Songcraft mission, please consider supporting us by visiting patreon.com slash songcraftshow. Though best known for the folk-tinged classic At 17, Janice Ian is an artist whose musical creativity crosses several genres. The nine-time Grammy nominee and two-time winner first gained national attention at the age of 15 when her self-penned Society's Child became a top 20 Billboard pop hit in 1966. Produced by Shadow Morton, who had built a reputation as the producer of radio-friendly girl groups like the Shangri-Las, the song took a new direction and tackled the considerably heavier and controversial topic of interracial romance. It was banned from radio, and Janice was targeted with death threats. After several albums for the Verve and Capitol labels, Janice signed with Columbia in the mid-1970s and found her greatest commercial success with the album Between the Lines. In addition to the top 20 adult contemporary hit In the Winter, the album featured the chart topping at 17. Janice performed both songs as the musical guest on the very first episode of Saturday Night Live. On the strength of that LP, she was nominated for Grammy Awards for Song of the Year, Record of the Year, Album of the Year, and Best Pop Vocal Performance, the latter of which she won. Both Society's Child and At 17 have since been inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. Other classics from the Janice Ian songbook include Jesse, which was a hit for Roberta Flack, and Stars, which has been recorded by Nina Simone, Cher, Shirley Bassey, and Joan Baez. A truly international artist, Janice's Love is Blind reached number one in Japan, while Fly Too High topped the charts in South Africa and reached the top ten in Australia and the Netherlands. In the mid-1990s, Janice launched her own label, Rude Girl Records. Her most recent release, The Light at the End of the Line, is Janice's first album of new material in 15 years. She has announced it will be her final solo studio album. Part One well, Scott, being a music podcast, um, we like to talk about what's happening in music. Um, sometimes I think as old guys, we spend more time talking about what's happened in music. <laughs> but um, um, there are things sometimes that happen in the world of music, and, and they're, you know, they, they catch even my old eyes. Right. Um, and are we going to complain about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees? Is that what this is? No, but that one's coming. We're definitely going to have that conversation. <laughs> um, I feel like today we have to talk about Bruno. Bruno Mars? No. Um, I can see that you don't have children. Um, <laughs> there's a song called We Don't Talk About Bruno. You can tell Bruno. because I still have my slender figures. <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> there's a song called We Don't Talk About Bruno, okay. which uh, in my house with a six-year-old and a three-year-old is the greatest hit of all time. Okay. Um, it is sung, chanted, referenced um, on a daily basis. I would say probably a dozen times a day. It's from this movie called Encanto. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that's it, the uh, Lin, Lin-Manuel Miranda exactly. thing, right? And it's, okay. it's a great movie. Um, I recommend it even to people that don't have children. It's, it's a fun watch. But this song from the movie, We Don't Talk About Bruno, which is an infectious little tune, has just topped the Billboard Hot 100 for the second week in a row. Okay. Now, what normally that, that spot is reserved for pop hits, Right. Songs that you would kind of hear on the radio, songs that you'd be very familiar with sort of in a more of a societal way. Your Ariana than... Grande is your Lady Gaga's. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. 
We're looking at two weeks, and I don't think it shows any signs of slowing down. Right. It also topped the Billboard Global 200. Okay. It's topping charts in countries all around the world. So it's a phenomenon. It's an absolute phenomenon. And, you know, the last time that a song from uh, a Disney film, a Disney animated film, the last time one of these songs was atop the Hot 100 for multiple weeks. Actually, you know what? It's never happened for multiple weeks. Huh. The last time it ever happened for one week was A Whole New World. Ah, Remember that song? Peter Bryson. Yeah, exactly. Um, that was in 1993 from Aladdin. Yeah. And what's really interesting about that is that was basically a love song. Right. Like you, that was on the radio. Yeah. You could translate that to, you know, just a, a song about love. Yeah. I never saw Aladdin and that song never struck me as like, what the heck are they talking exactly. about? Well, yeah. we don't talk about Bruno is not, it's not about like universal <laughs> right? love stories. or This is just about the movie. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't sound something to me no, like would it's about this character named universal. Bruno. I won't go into the whole story, but if you haven't watched the movie, you're like, uh, what? Right. So I'm trying to figure out how this happened. Because it's not really a big radio smash. And part of the reason that it's happened is that the way the Hot 100 works is it incorporates streaming right. as a big part of the metric. Yeah. And in the week from January 28th to February 3rd, this song was streamed 37.6 million times in the U.S. alone. Wow. How many of those were at your house? Uh, I think 36 million <laughs> were in my house. Um, that's, a, that's a fair question. And what's funny is my six-year-old keeps saying... You know, they say we don't talk about Bruno, but all the song does is talk, talk about, about Bruno. Bruno. <laughs> yeah, and I said, "Welcome to this confusing world, honey." <laughs> um, but it's it's a really interesting view into how big this music is, mm. uh, and and how much parents are drivers of music consumption when it comes to playing music for their kids. Yeah, and then it's showing how strong streaming is now in mm -hmm. terms of the way music is consumed. Right. I mean, is this song on, have you ever heard it on the radio? I or? haven't heard it on the radio, but in that same week, it got uh, 3.6 million radio airplay audience impressions, okay. um, which is not giant. Yeah. It's, it's not global smash kind so of So this numbers. is being driven primarily by the streaming. By world. the stream, 100%. I yeah. mean, it had 13,000 downloads in a week, which yeah. nowadays is kind of a big number. Yeah. But still, that's that's not, uh, these aren't record-breaking numbers. But but when you're looking at, at 37 million streams in a week, yeah. and they're going up week after week, I mean, you can see why this why this song is is got that kind of traction. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I get that we don't talk about Bruno. Do we talk about Bruno pulling his music off of Spotify to protest <laughs> Joe Rogan? You know, I, you'd have to watch the movie to see if you think Bruno is that type of dude right. i'm not sure um but you know what we do need to talk about today hmm. patreon yeah we definitely need to talk about patreon in fact patreon is the opposite of bruno insofar <laughs> as we really we really need to talk we about like patreon. to talk about patreon we like to talk about patreon we haven't talked about patreon as much as we probably should on yeah, this show because um, we don't have 37.6 million patreon uh, subscribers not quite patrons, not quite as it were we're moving uh, that direction but Slowly. if you haven't heard us talk about patreon maybe you're kind of new to the show um what it is is a way for people to offer a monthly pledge to help keep this show going and uh just like in public radio you know they have those uh pledge drives and and you change the station to something else uh if if you were listening which you should i mean let's be honest <laughs> if you if you like public radio then uh come on support the local station but you know you get a tote bag uh you get a a magnet you get whatever you get something that that shows that you helped uh support the show well on uh patreon if you go to patreon.com slash songcraft show uh you can do that very thing right here with our podcast and it's super helpful yeah and you know we do ads from time to time you'll hear ads in in the episodes you know from 
trusted friends that we work with, but we don't do a lot of ads. We don't we do, don't a, lot do ads. a lot of ads. We don't want to bombard you. Totally. And and I know you guys listen to podcasts sometimes and you're like, oh my gosh, why are there so many ads? And, and you know, that's not something that we do. This is a way that, that you can help, you know, to, to just keep it going. It, it uh, puts this a little more in the category of something closer to gainful employment, I think, for us. Um, and But it doesn't just help us. Uh, there are things that, that we have for you as well. Uh, one of them being a shout-out on the show. In fact, we have one today. Yep. We have a new patron, and the name of the patron is Indie Soul. Wow. And I have not been able to figure out if we're talking about like a small record label or a publication under the name of Indie Soul. Or somebody whose parents gave them the coolest name ever. The coolest name in history. Yeah. So... Uh, for you, Indy, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hope this is just your name that your name is Indy Soul because that is maybe the coolest thing ever. Um, but we, we want to give you a shout out. Uh, you know, any of you can have shout outs uh, if if you are a part of the ten dollar or up tier of patrons. And we've got uh, T-shirts. I believe Indy's gonna get one. Yeah, if uh, you are a supporter at the twenty dollar a month or higher tier, then uh, you get a very cool T-shirt. And you know, maybe you're not ready to become a Patreon uh, regular supporter. You actually can go to our website at songcraftshow.com. Uh, uh, there's a tab there for T-shirts, and you can just you know do a one-off, get yourself the Songcraft T-shirt. But uh, they're they're very cool, cool design. Uh, I designed them myself, so yeah. I'm going to say that. Uh, but it, yeah, they're a cool design and a good way for you to uh, show your Songcraft affiliation. If you want a T-shirt that's been worn by one of the hosts, you can send me a private <laughs> message for that. Um, it's a whole different thing. That's uh, we're back on the dark web again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but in all seriousness, uh, Patreon is something that, that we, we, we don't talk enough about probably, um, but it is something that helps helps us keep going, helps us keep these stories uh, on the air, as it were. And um, we know that you support us because you're listening. You're hearing us right now. So um, hopefully you'll choose to support us through Patreon. Well, on today's episode, we've got a conversation with Janice Ian. And if you guys uh, listen to this show, you know that Paul and I are based in Los Angeles, but we grew up in Nashville. It's always fun to talk to someone with a Nashville connection. And that has been Janice Ian's professional home base for a number of years now uh, and really kind of had uh, a couple of different eras of her career that you could point to. And I think once she moved to Nashville, she would tell you that that uh, brought about a whole different perspective and a whole different time frame in her career in terms of how she approached songwriting. And so uh, it's always fun for us to, to talk to somebody who's uh, kind of one of the, the hometown favorites. Yeah, it's always interesting to hear how a change of environment you know, causes a, a change in output and, and the way you write songs and the kind of songs you write. So um, Janice had a lot to offer uh, on that subject and many more. So uh, let's get into it. Part two. Once again, our guest on this episode is nine-time Grammy nominee and two-time winner Janice Ian, who is best known for her classics Society's Child and At 17, both of which were inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. She joins us to chat about her long career and her latest studio album, The Light at the End of the Line. Janice, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you, Scott. Good to be here, or wherever we are. <laughs> <laughs> Out in the ether somewhere. Uh -huh. um, well, uh, you've got a new album called The Light at the End of the Line, and um, you have said that, that this will perhaps be your last solo studio album, and um, I'm interested in how that unfolded for you, whether or not you thought, you know, I want to, to start out and and make a statement that is kind of the period on the end of the sentence that has been my songwriting and performing career, 
or if you kind of got to the point after the fact where you had a selection of songs and you said to yourself, you know, I think this is kind of revealing itself to me as uh, the the statement that I want to close with, for lack of a better word. I think it was a combination of things, Scott. Uh, for starts, there was the tour that got postponed once and then got postponed again. So I had some free time on my hands. I had written a song called Better Times Will Come the morning after John Prine died. John's death hit a lot of us very, very hard. He set a standard that's really difficult <laughs> to live up to. And I didn't expect him to go before me. Hmm. So the song started playing in my head when I was doing laundry, and I sang it into a tape recorder, uh, actually just into my phone. And then a lot of my friends suddenly couldn't go on the road to publicize anything from a book of poetry to a book of cartoons to their new albums. So I talked to people like Eric Bibb, and I said, um, I have half a million Facebook followers. Why don't we try and make a project? We wound up with bettertimeswillcome.com. It's 188 versions of that same song that I wrote after John died. Uh, being exposed to those many those people, I have um, sign language from China, and then I have from the Far East, and then I, I have uh, Welsh versions and Irish versions and African versions, all done on the fly, all done by people who needed publicity and wanted to be part of it. Spurred something in me. And I had been thinking for a number of years about... Well, it's hard in a world that makes so much of contests to try and tell yourself it's not a contest except between the best I can do and huh. the best I can do. Yeah, It's difficult with Dancing with the Stars and all of that to get to the point where you stop worrying about, oh my God, am I as good as such and such? Am I as good as such and such? And for me in particular, I think, having started when I was 14 professionally with with the bang of a society's child, it's difficult to not stare at that and think, oh my God, I'm, <laughs> I'm leaving a legacy. How do, I, how do I deal with this now as a 70-year-old person hmm. writing new material? Hmm. So I had started keeping track of songs that might be what I would consider impeccable songs that I could sing on stage for the, the next however many years, songs that I could record and put out there with no sense that uh, that they didn't live up to my best. Let me put it that way. And one, one day I looked at it, and I had 16 songs listed, and I thought, wow, if I winnow these down, I might actually have 11 or 12 and make an album. Hmm. Once I had them winnowed down and I was working on Resist with Randy Liego and on Better Times Will Come with Victor Krauss, it started forming in my head, and I thought about it a lot more than I think any album I've done because I wasn't going to be able to be in the studio. I wasn't going to be working with live musicians. I've always been lucky to work with people like Steve Gadd and, and um, Richard Davis and Randy and people like that in the studio. So it was going to lack all that, but at the same time, it felt more like when I was a kid in folk music, and I was just dependent on my own interpretations. Huh. 
Yeah. And that was part of the song choices too. If the song couldn't just stand on its own vocal guitar, then the song wasn't supposed to be on this album. Hmm. If, if this is all making sense. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, at that point, it became, all right, then what can I put together? And what is it going to look like? My tour manager and I had been joking as the tour continually got postponed and we tried to cram now two years worth of dates into eight months. Um, she said, well, we should just call it the end of the line. And I thought, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny, but also kind of depressing. <laughs> right. And I thought about uh, Billy Ed Wheeler's autobiography, where he talks about leaving the coal mines and literally running away from his stepfather through the shafts and through the, the tunnels under the earth. And his relief when he saw a light at the other end, it was miles that he walked. And I thought, I really love the idea of a light at the end of the line. Not just if you believe that there's an afterlife, but also I'm 70. That's very different from being a 12-year-old sending my first song into Broadside Magazine or hmm. a 14-year-old making my first record or a 24-year-old having a hit with that 17. This is really different, and there's no there's no map for being an older artist in my field mm. of pop. Jazz has a couple of maps here and there, certainly. Folk music, we've got Pete to look to, Pete Seeger, but there's not really a map in the world of instant gratification. Yeah, yeah. To bow out and to bow out gracefully. And at the same time, at 70, I realized that I like being home. I like being with my family. I like playing with my dog. <laughs> <laughs> I like growing tomato plants, you know, as prosaic as it sounds. I like being in one place. I've toured most of my life. And it was really, um, it was really a new thing that first felt, I first felt very trapped like most of the artists I know, because we took it for granted that we could travel. But then I started enjoying the sense that it was like 100, 150 years ago when taking a journey really meant a big commitment. You didn't just hop on a plane. Yeah. So it grew out of all of those things. And then as, as I began putting the songs together, the album itself took shape in a, in a different way than other albums, very song-based, very acoustic based. Um, I think I'm still standing was clearly something to start with. And I was going to close with the light at the end of the line, but I thought that's pretty depressing. <laughs> and then when Victor and I finished better times will come with those 14 or 15 soloists at the end and the whole thing just devolves into a uh, complete chaos. <laughs> I thought, that's a that's a good end statement because that's what the last two years have felt like. Better times, better times, better times will come. Better times, better times, better times will come when this world learns to live as one. All oh, better times will come. Better times. I have
have to point out that only an accomplished songwriter could come up with a title like The Light at the End of the Line because it's got alliteration, it's got internal rhyme, and then, of course, then it says something quite meaningful. So you, you crafted a perfect lyric there in your title of your album. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Funnily enough, that was the song that I was most afraid of writing because wow. I, I didn't want to... I didn't want to be in a position where I made the whole audience feel like, oh, my God, here's this maudlin, horrible song. You know, she's telling us how great she is, and now she's leaving. <laughs> but I also, as I was writing it, and I got to those lines, uh, I was yours, you were mine, just a heartbeat away. I thought, that is really how I feel about my live audiences. I feel like I get an age span from seven or eight-year-old kids whose parents are bringing them to see a guitarist yeah. to adolescents and 20-somethings who are coming because they heard at 17 and Mean Girls mm. or Abfab to people my own age and older who have been with me since society's child. And for 30 years, I've stayed after shows and signed and met people. Uh, I think I've missed two shows in that time. Wow. Huh. And it's been a revelation, as as uh, as Pollyanna-ish as that sounds. It's <laughs> yeah. been a real revelation to to hear the effect that your work can have on people. It's the end of the line, and I know it's been rough over time after time. It was always enough. You were there when I left. You were there when I cried. You were there as I tell you goodbye. It's the end of... You know, you mentioned uh, I'm Still Standing being an obvious choice for album opener, and, and I'm, I'm someone that pays close attention to album openers and kind of the statement that you're making with, with this particular song, and even the opening lyric to the opener of the song. And it's interesting that, you know, the first line of this song is, see these lines on my face. Mm -hmm. um, and you were talking about that there's no really roadmap for, you know, pop music uh, past a certain age. But in a way, you're sort of drawing the roadmap, which is like, look, I, I'm not going to shy away from the, the process of aging or, or what experience looks like or feels like in my life. In fact, I'm going to point to it in the very first line. See these lines on well, my face? Yeah, that, that's like at 17, though, or hmm. even society's child. I think if there's, if there's one thing I do better than most of my contemporaries, and <laughs> believe me, there are not many, um, I was born with a gift that lets me talk about things in songs that people find hard to talk about mm. or to acknowledge. So a lot of people felt like at 17 told their story, but they couldn't give voice to it. And I think I'm still standing as the same thing. It's honestly not something I do consciously, except that I know when I'm uncomfortable with the lyric, it's either because it's a bad lyric or it's the place I should go. Huh. Hmm. Wow. And so when you start talking about there are marks on my skin or um, how do we survive, and bruises and scars, those are places that are hard to go to, I think, especially for women in this society, hmm. to say, here's, here's my scars, here they are. Hmm. But to say that they're hieroglyphs, that, that puts it into a whole other world. 
Yeah. Right. You call them the, the lyric of your life. I mean, that's that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I love that song. I love that uh, the first time I sang it for anybody, I was writing with a couple of 18, 19-year-olds, huh. and then we were trading our new songs, and I sang that, and they burst into tears. Huh. <laughs> and I said, wow. why are you crying? You can't possibly relate. <laughs> and the girl said, um, and I use the word girl because she was young, but she said, that's that's my life. And I thought, whoa, huh. that's what I strive for, to hit that universal. Mm. And I wouldn't have expected it of this song, but there it was. See these lines on my face, they're a map of where I've been. And the deeper they are traced, the deeper life has settled in. How do we survive living out our lives? And I could not trade a line. You know, you mentioned writing your first song at, at you know, the age of 12, uh, which I believe was Hair of Spun Gold, if I'm correct. Well done. Um, yes. And... You know, that's a song that that did appear on your 1967 debut solo album. And, you know, I I would never want anyone to hear any of like the first 50 songs uh, that I wrote. And it's remarkable to me (laughs) that you were able to have a firm grasp on song structure, how to put a song together, you know, at such a young age. There's always a, a mix of inspiration and craft, right? Um, always. But for, for somebody who started so young, started making music at, at such a young age, I'd love to get your thoughts on um, what that means. I mean, do you think if you had been born in a different place with a, with a different family that you were just kind of chosen to have this songwriting gift or do you view that as kind of a, a product of your environment growing up that, that you know, nurtured that thing in you? I mean, how, how do you think about that kind of talent that manifested itself so early? I think it's a combination of things. When I do master classes, I always remind the students that any great artist, and I'm not talking about myself um, necessarily, but any great artist is going to be humbled before their own talent because we all know that we were born with the talent. We didn't do anything. We were just born with it in us. Uh, how, did I, how did I know at the age of 12 that the chorus should lift? How did I know what to do with the modulation? I grew up listening to jazz. I grew up listening to um, classical music. I didn't hear pop music until I was 13 or 14 in mm. the Beach Boys. Huh. So uh, I had a lot of great exposure to great music. Not to say that pop music isn't great music, but I had exposure to, I guess the word would be, a kind of sophisticated melodic music hmm. 
that you didn't find in most pop music then. You found it in Gershwin, uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein, people like that. So I was born with that talent into the right family for that talent because my family loved music and respected artists and into the right country. Those are all big variables. I think if my grandparents had stayed in Russia and Poland, uh, I would have been pushed into being a concert pianist and I would never have been a good enough concert pianist because it wouldn't have held my attention. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have that gift the way that I had a gift for songwriting. I think also for me, um, I didn't really learn craft until I moved to Nashville and until I started studying with Stella Adler. So hmm. not until my 30s. It was always very hit or miss, and I depended a lot on my talent. It wasn't until Stella, who said to me at one point that I had reached the age where talent was no longer enough, huh. that I understood that I needed to work in a different way. I always loved writing. I always loved taking apart other people's work, but I needed to really learn from people like Tom Schuyler, who, who said to me one day, that's a great Janissean line. I don't know what the hell it means, but it's a great <laughs> line. And, you know, I needed people like that to, to tell me. And people like Kai Fleming to say, you got to make sure your second verse is as strong and stronger. Hmm. you got to make sure that whatever lyric you write speaks when you just say it out loud. I needed to be around other songwriters, and that was impossible when I was 14, 15. You right. know, the real building was out of my reach. Yeah. So would I have been the same? I, you know, I don't know. Um, I know that from the time I heard a piano and realized a human played it, I was about two and a half, that was all I ever wanted. Hmm. It didn't occur to me until I was... 15 or 16 that you could make a living at it. My, my plan was to be a vet, and then I was going to lifeguard in the summers and do music on the side, and I thought that sounded pretty reasonable. Huh. Your uh, penchant for writing a brave lyric uh, about a topic that's going to make the world sit up and take notice showed up really early uh, with a song like Society's Child in 1966. Mm. Um, you know, when we see a song like Resist on the new record, um, mm. you know, you're, you're writing that with all the benefit of experience, um, but at the time of, of writing and putting out Society's Child, you know, there was a lot of kind of firestorm that followed that song. Oh, my God. The, the way radio responded, the, the kind of threats that you received. What, did you have any idea that you were setting out on, on that kind of experience when you wrote that song? No, heck no. My dad, when he listened to that album with me, that first album, he said, you're going to get in a lot of trouble for this. You're going to have a lot of problems. And I kind of laughed at him. Because I thought, hey, you know, it's just music. (laughs) 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 You know, this from the person who grew up on Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger, whose parents were under watch from the FBI. I just, I really, I I didn't think about pop music. You know, I thought about the folk world that I was trying to get into, Odetta and Dave Van Ronk, people like that, where everybody knew who their friends were because that was the people in work shirts and jeans and long hair. I, d- I didn't really think about it going beyond that. Shadow thought about that. Larry Martiri thought about that. Uh, but I didn't until it was already there. Come to my door, baby. Faces clean and shining black as night. My mother went to answer, you know that you look so fine. Now I could understand your tears and your shame. She 
four albums for Verve uh, between 1967 and 1969 um, before going over to Capitol and just doing one record at Capitol in 1971 called Present Company. And, you know, I believe that on those first four records you did um, as a teenager, by the way, uh, you wrote all those songs solo. Um, I did. But that one Capitol record, uh, there were, I think, three songs that were co-written with Peter Cunningham. And um, I'm curious if, you know, I know once you move to Nashville, we see much more of an uptick in in co-writers. But, you know, going back to this era, it was basically just you solo. And then we, we briefly see a, a co-writer here appear on, on just one album. And then we don't see a co-writer again for a while. Um, I'm wondering if co-writing was... Um, uh, a draw for you in those early years about something that you kind of wanted to do or if, if co-writing was just not really, you know, much of a, a part of your, your universe at the time? I'd say it wasn't really on my radar. Peter was my first boyfriend and we were living together. And so on those three songs, um, he had ideas and I put them into songs Yeah. Uh, or partial ideas. I didn't think about it again until Night Rains when... Uh, my friend Stanley introduced me to Albert Hammond, and we wrote The Other Side of the Sun. And then I had wanted desperately to work with Giorgio Moroder and Nile Rogers, and um, Rogers was busy, but Giorgio came through. So that was a different experience. With Albert, he was such a good first experience of true co-writing because he made it not scary. Uh-huh. He made, He sat there and he said, look, we're going to sit here and we're going to see if we write something or we're going to go out to breakfast. And if we don't get anything, that's okay too. Yeah. yeah. And that was great. It was so freeing. And we wrote one of my favorite songs. Giorgio was uh, <laughs> completely different. He sent me a track. It had a little melody line. We went in, I sang it twice only because the first time I had to explain to him that I was warming up and I needed another take <laughs> and we were done. Wow. Um, Albert was much more like on that same album, a piano duet I did with Chick Corea, where it was really two people working hand in glove. But you're right. I didn't really start co-writing until Nashville. And of course, Nashville co-writing, you learn so much and you get so trapped. Hmm. It's a, it's a heaven and hell thing because I learned so much from people like Kai and, Tom and Jess Leary and uh, just all the co-writers that I've, as cliched as it sounds, that I've been lucky enough to learn from. Yeah. And yet you can also easily fall into verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus out. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an easy trap. And I fought that trap all the way through this album with, with songs like um, Swan and Noah, which breaks a bunch of rules, or Resist, which breaks a bunch of rules. Um, or Summer in New York, which is much more adhering to the jazz rules than to the pop or country rules. Hmm. Nashville is great as a co-writer to me because I got to be a number of people's first co-write experience. Um, Dina Carter, Bette Midler. I got a nice reputation among certain people for (laughs) being good with virgins, being able (laughs) to... uh, 
I mean, I don't mean that to sound gross or anything, right. but um, doing for people what Albert did for me, which is to take the terror out of it. Because mm-hmm. when you co-write, you have to learn that you can't edit. Hmm. You can't sit there in front of another human being and say, no, 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 wait until this is perfect. Yeah. You can't treat it like that. Uh, that was one of the big lessons from Tom Schuyler. I noticed his lips were moving. He was talking to himself, and I thought, oh, my God, other writers do that. <laughs> I do that. Yeah. It was a revelation because I'd never hung with writers before. Hmm. So the beauty of Nashville is that that's so available and so assumed. My first yeah. night there, I walked into the Holiday Inn, and <laughs> the check-in person and the porter were sitting in the back room writing. They had to interrupt their writing session to check me in. <laughs> Very And Nashville. I thought, man, I'm home. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you use that term, breaking the rules, and... You know, as a teenager, you are writing very much by instinct. And, and as you said, you sort of came to understand craft, uh, you know, after um, after you came to Nashville as a as a songwriter. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the difference between breaking the rules as a young writer because you didn't necessarily know them versus an experienced writer breaking the rules precisely because you know them and, and know how to break them well. I'm not sure there is a big difference, um, except that when you're doing it as an experienced writer, because you can be an experienced writer at 15, uh, and some people I know never become experienced writers, and they're my age. <laughs> but right. when you do it as an experienced writer, you know that you're breaking the rules because you know all those other choices. Um, case in point, I was writing with somebody very famous who is not a songwriter, and this person we were working on a song from a title I had and they came up for an hour with probably a hundred different ideas and it wore me out. (laughs) I realized that it wore me out because I had already somewhere in the back of my head thought of almost all of those Hmm. and accepted and rejected them without even thinking. So that was the experience. But this person was so talented and such a natural that two or three out of those hundred were things I would never have thought of myself. Hmm. So I think part of it is that the experience teaches you to pay attention in a different way. You know, when you're young and you're writing, and I don't know a songwriter who doesn't do this, if they say they don't, they're lying. When you're young and writing, you keep track of how many songs you write every Mm -hmm. month, every year, every week. It's all about the numbers. And that's great because you keep learning from your mistakes. But when you get older and you have a lot more experience under your belt, those lists stop mattering. Hmm. And what really matters are which songs you put that star next to where you go, yeah, that's a really good song. Yeah, I hit the mark with that one. Yeah. So when I was working on Resist, um, Resist to me, is it's a very... It's a really complicated song. I mean, it's got four or five completely different songs in there. (laughs) And Randy, fortunately, is used to me enough that, and plays enough instruments that uh, he was able to give each part its own distinct feel while staying true to that first bass drum hit that feels to me like somebody is walking into the room with trouble on their mind. Mm -hmm. But when I was working on Resist, the hardest part was just going, 
where can I take this where it feels logical, it makes sense internally, it says what I want to say, but it's not prettied up because I really wanted to slap people across the face with it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I said in my, in my bio or somewhere, I, I'm not comfortable talking about carving out women's genitals. I'm, I'm not comfortable talking about um, tell me I'm holy when I cover up my skin or um, tell me I'm ugly so I'll buy your crap. That's not the language I grew up with. Yeah. But it was and is, I believe, the language that is necessary. And that's a choice. You know, I mean, you make that as a songwriter. You decide moment by moment, are you going to do what you think is necessary or what is comfortable yeah. or what is uncomfortable or what is saleable? All of those, all of those choices. There's, ah, there's a lot of choices. She is, she is, she is too short, too fat, too skinny. Too tall, too plain, too pretty Too hot, too wet, too sticky Too picky Oh, what an ugly girl Oh, what an ugly girl You know, we we talk a lot in these interviews about... um, writers in their formative years and we all talk about their childhood and where they grew up but i'm sitting here thinking that for for the creative every year is a formative year um i hope so you know i mean if you're if you're paying attention to the world around you which is which is generally necessary to continue to create relevant important work um and you've lived in a number of different places and worked in a number of different places and i and i you know, looking at your story, I see this move to Los Angeles in the early 1970s. Um, yeah, that was a big move. You know, and to me, uh, I I picture just everyone walking down the street, bumping into each other's acoustic guitars. Uh, <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Oh, in, my God. That no, that's era. the village in the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and I, I actually did want to ask you sort of comparatively about what you knew from, like, maybe a Greenwich Village folk scene to sort of what was going on in, in what we sort of refer to now as the Laurel Canyon era of, of Los Angeles. How, how did those changes affect you as a songwriter? That Laurel Canyon era was more when I was 16, 17, 18. Janice was there and Jimmy and Joni was living there and uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, them. And I was always a few years too young. Um, I got invited to a couple of parties here and there. Um, uh, Peter Noon invited me to a couple. Janice invited me to a couple. But in general, um, I don't think I was... I don't know if it was that I wasn't on their radar or I scared them or I just wasn't the partying type. Um, it's funny. I watched the Linda Ronstadt special, uh, which I thought was just great. And I was watching Linda and Emmy and Dolly, and they were all talking about being friends in a way that I really missed out on that. And I, it left me um, very teary because I was, I think because of the age difference, I fell into this weird gap year in terms of age. Me and Arlo Guthrie were pretty much the only people we knew in our age group. Arlo was just a bit older than me. Um, And we were writing from a young age. Had lunch with Donny Osmond once years and years ago and I hadn't thought about it, but he said, look, Janice, you know, there were only five of us, really. There were you and me and uh, Brenda Lee, Stevie Wonder, and uh, Michael Jackson. 
Wow. And of the five of us who were 12, 13, 14, 15, only you and Stevie were writing. Hmm. And only you were writing social protest songs. Huh. Wow. So if you look at it that way, I was too young for most of that. I didn't really experience much of it. Until I, I got it. I got it more in the village when I was 14, 15, 16, because in folk music, you didn't, uh, they, they expected me to be relevant and to be thinking about those things. Hmm. Yeah. LA for me, um, I moved there, I guess I'd already lived in nine or 10 different places because of my folks and the FBI watching them. So we kept moving. Um, when I went to LA was the first time I really lived on my own. I was broke. I had no car, and I had a lot of time to write. Oh. Um, I did lead sheets for people at a buck and two bucks a page, and I did commercials where I could for small radio stations, like out of Vegas to do the Sands Hotel. And I just scuffled like everybody else I knew, but I had hours every day to listen to a transistor radio that only got AM, and get an education in pop music that I hadn't had, huh. and then sit down and start writing uh, things like The Man You Are and Me and Thank Yous and uh, ultimately at 17. Hmm. Hmm. So L.A. for me those years was more about growing up. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned The Man You Are and Me. The the B-side of that single was Jesse, which became a hit for uh, Roberta Flack before you recorded your own version, uh, or at least before you released your own version yes. on the uh, Stars album in 1974. And you, know, you look at a song like Jesse or even a song like Stars, which has been recorded by Nina Simone, Cher, Joan Baez, Shirley Bassey, you know, and others. Um, what is it like for you as a writer, especially a writer who started out very much in the singer-songwriter mode? when you start hearing other people, other artists interpreting your work, what was that experience like for you? <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Just, uh, you know, I wrote Jesse, uh, and then Charles Hasnavour said he'd like to translate it to French for anonymous Guri. Hmm. And I got a lesson in translating from Charles Hasnavour. Hmm. I mean, I, from the time I was 16 and I was playing the Berkeley Folk Festival, and I looked out and I realized that everybody was really listening. I don't know why it hadn't occurred to me before, but it hadn't occurred to me that people were really listening. Hmm. And all of a sudden, I thought, I'm, I'm not a performer, I'm a writer. Hmm. A writer is what I need to be. Huh. Uh, from that moment on, all I ever wanted was to be a great writer or the best writer I could be. And so to have, to know what goes into choosing a song for an album for someone like Bette uh, Midler to know that someone like Bette listens to 200 songs before they make the choice hmm. um, to know that Roberta sat on Jesse for a year while she decided how she wanted to sing it, how she wanted to phrase it that was two years before I did anything but a little work tape of it I know the work that went into those choices so it's an unbelievable, uh, again, it's a cliche to say it, but it's an unbelievable honor. Yeah. I think when somebody like a Glenn Campbell takes stars, and that's the same Glenn Campbell that did Wichita Lineman and some of the best songs written in my generation, uh, to make that cut, that's major. That's huge. 
Yeah. yeah. Stars, they come and go. They come fast, they come slow. They go like the last light of the sun, all in a blaze. They always have a story. But it gets lonely here when there's no one here to share. You know, you, you continue uh, referring to a lot of these as these learning experiences, you know, learning from Charles Aznavour and, and all the learning you were doing in Los Angeles. And it's, uh, you know, I, I tend to think that when people are very young and inexperienced, one of the things that they often don't realize is that they're young and inexperienced. <laughs> um, <laughs> God forbid any of us have that little ego. <laughs> well, yeah, but you, you seem to, to have had, you know, a, a way to at least subjugate some you know, measure of your ego in this time to recognize that you still had things to learn. Um, was that kind of a product of your upbringing or was that uh, just environmentally things kind of kept happening to to remind you, hey, not yet? Or yeah. No, I, I, it was very much a Zelig world. Um, to, to be around somebody like Jimi Hendrix uh, and watch him working out a line and realize that, yeah, he sat there and he played that line 150 times hmm. to get it into his fingers to have the luck of an Asnivor, to luck into Stella Adler, which was the first time I ever had a really great teacher hmm. who took me under her wing and who taught me that you could spend a full two hours on a Tennessee Williams title trying to figure out what does cat on a hot tin roof really mean hmm. and take apart something like that to then have someone like that look at my songs and say, Stella always used to say, writers are born knowing. And the unspoken thing behind that was it's unfortunate that they don't realize it. Hmm. Because most of us work on instinct. Yeah. But you can't only work on instinct. Because when you're tired, when you're on a deadline, when you're out of your depth, instinct isn't going to help you. Hmm. It's the craft that you need hmm. at that point. Yeah. So I was lucky in the people that I was surrounded by or ran across. And I was lucky that um, <laughs> even though I don't listen well in other areas, I always listened well when it came to writing. You know, you've touched on a couple points you've referenced at 17, which obviously is one of those songs that, you know, is, is bigger than life. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things that, um, it's one of those songs that almost seems like it's just kind of always existed. And, and those are the sort of songs that I think are the most um, interesting to hear about from songwriters, because those are the type of songs that I think it's, it's easy for fans to take for granted. And, and um, we, we forget sometimes that, you know, at one point that song was a person sitting there with their guitar, hashing out concepts and scratching out lines that didn't work. And there was, it didn't just, you know, necessarily fall out of the ether. It was long ago and far away. The world was younger than today. And dreams were all they gave for free to ugly duckling girls like me. We all play the game when we dare to cheat ourselves. Solitaire, inventing lovers on the phone, repenting of 
I write, I don't know about other people, but when I write, songs usually fall into two categories. There's the long haul songs, um, a resist that took two years. Um, a, a deceptively simple song called My Tennessee Hills that I that I duetted with Dolly Parton on that took almost seven years because I couldn't get a chorus. Or I had the chorus, rather, and I couldn't get a verse until I looked at the chorus one day and thought, by God, it's a George Jones song. Um, <laughs> and then there, there are songs like um, Light at the End of the Line that took two days. Or uh, Swan and Noah where I pulled a scrap of paper out of my jeans before putting them in the wash and thought, ooh, that's a good chorus. At 17 took three months, and I remember the three months because it's basically three verses. And each verse took a month, and each verse became scarier because that kind of, I don't know if you'd call it confessional writing or zip-open writing, I don't know mm -hmm. what you call it, uh, wasn't really part of the lexicon, at least not that I knew. Yeah. The closest I knew about that would be someone like Nina Simone singing Four Women. Hmm. Uh, but to write a song where the narrator steps forward in the third verse out of nowhere and suddenly starts speaking in their own voice and confesses that she feels ugly, she feels awful, she hates the way she looks, to... That, that was really scary. It was scary enough that the, the first months that I sang it, I sang it with my eyes closed because I was waiting for everybody to laugh at me. Wow. Mm. It was an enormous shock when I opened them and people were tearing up. But I also remember uh, I had had to move back in with my mom because I was in between making the Stars album and Between the Lines and I still couldn't get work. So I had a gig here and there, but not enough to pay my rent. And it was, it was humiliating to move back in with my mom. Oh, my God, I was 22, <laughs> 23. And I felt like I, I had to write every day to pay her back. Huh. So I would sit at her dining room table and I would write, but I'd get bored because I had nothing to say. And I'd be reading the New York Times magazine that day and there was an article by a debutante who said, I, I learned the truth at 18. And I was playing that little ding, 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 And 18 didn't scan. So I went with 17. <laughs> the song kind of took off from there. I don't, you know, 17 again breaks a lot of rules. It doesn't have a fixed chorus. Hmm. It goes up and then it goes down and then it goes up again and it goes down again. It ends down. It yeah. ends with a retard. Uh, we had a huge battle at radio. I, I was so lucky in the promotion people at what was then CBS Records, Columbia Records, that they were so solidly behind it because they worked their butts off with me. And it took six or eight months of, oh, my God, the 5 a.m. TV shows and hmm. working 18 hours a day, and I got to the point where I had to be woken up by somebody squeezing a wet washcloth over my face because I was so tired all the time. Hmm. Wow. So it was a work song and it was a work record and it didn't do anything anywhere but the U.S. It hmm. was never a hit in England. It was never a hit in Australia or Japan. But 10 years ago when I played in Japan, the whole audience sang it with me. Hmm. Wow. So it's entered into some other kind of world I, huh. I don't know what you'd call it yeah yeah 
Well, it's interesting you talk about it being a hit isolated you know to the u.s because your next album after tones in 1976 had the song love is blind which was a number one hit in japan and you had talked earlier about uh fly too high which you wrote with giorgio moroder yeah that went to number one in in south africa and was a top 10 in in australia and the netherlands Run too fast After this huge U.S. success, suddenly you start finding yourself having these hits internationally. Um, I'm curious if knowing that you're connecting with international audiences where, you know, there's sort of an assumed cultural, a shared cultural language, so to speak, you know, within anyone's home country. Once you start finding your songs, connecting with people who maybe even speak completely different languages, um, does that play into your your process at all in terms of thinking about a wider audience maybe than you'd previously conceived of that you're trying to speak to and reach? I don't think so for me because I never thought about audience except in terms of wanting to reach the universal. Hmm. I wanted to write songs that were more like Jacques Brel that, that talked about the human, oh, this sounds so pretentious, I'm sorry, that talked about <laughs> the human condition and not just my own navel. I, I found myself really fascinating in my teens, but that wore off pretty fast. And my own experience is not that vast compared with the experience of the world, you know? Hmm. I, I don't mean to sound pretentious, but it's really not that interesting, ultimately. Hmm. What's interesting is the work and the process. So for me, when I first started going to Japan, it was 76, I think. Nobody spoke English. I mean, once you left Tokyo, where I had a simultaneous translator everywhere, um, she actually came on the whole tour because no one spoke any English. It's very different now. But then it was really my first time in a completely foreign country where, unlike Europe, I couldn't even read a sign. Um, if you, If I wanted to go for a walk by myself, the record had been number one for almost a year. I couldn't go on it for a walk by myself. Huh. Um, yeah. If I wanted to take a taxi, I had to ask the hotel to write down where I was going and give me a card to give to the return taxi because right. we couldn't speak. And I picked up just enough Japanese, just enough Dutch, just enough of each language to ask where the bathroom was and how did I get to my hotel. <laughs> but it also... I think it opened my brain in some ways, not 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 the ways you would think of, not like, oh, I think I'm going to write for this. Well, if I do that, Japanese people won't get it. More like, wow, this language is structured so completely differently from English, and why is it so much easier to write a sexual love song in French or any Romance language than in English, which is much more like German and very difficult to be sexual without it being risque or, or really obnoxious. Huh. Hmm. Uh, you start thinking about stuff like that or uh, in China and Japan where the person's 
last name always comes first. Yeah. Um, and that's a completely different way from the friendly American, you know? Right. It's a much more formalized, um, communally, commun- community oriented way of looking at it, where it's for your family and for your community rather than the American spirit of singularity. Yeah. <laughs> It sounds very deep. This is this is what happens when you're a writer, I think. You know, my my wife looks at me once in a while and says, "Could you just not be so fucking profound?" <laughs> well, it but everything that you're saying right now kind of funnels into a thought for me because you know, even as you're talking about you know concepts of sexuality and music, and you're also talking about uh, sort of navel gazing versus uh, making universal statements. Uh, you know, I look look ahead a bit to the early '90s. Uh, and the Breaking Silence album, you were becoming uh, more open about your own sexuality and, and sort of letting the world know where you were at. Um, and it, that seems to be a, a case where embracing your own story and under and looking, you know, clear-eyed at your own life can become incredibly universal. And a song like Some People's Lives seems mm. it's such a it's such a soft, you know, walk softly and carry a big lyric. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Didn't anybody tell? Didn't anybody see? Didn't anybody love them like you love me? Some people's eyes. You got more personal and more introspective in a way on this particular issue but became so universal by doing it. Yeah, I'm not sure that being gay had a whole lot to do with it, honestly, and I, and I say that with no disparagement to my being gay, um, because my sexuality was always pretty fluid. I, I fell in love with a boy and then a girl, and then I married a man, and then I married a woman. So I can see where it would have been confusing for people. <laughs> for me, everybody I worked with, everybody in the music industry certainly knew that I... Uh, in my 20s, I was living with a woman. And yet, at that point in my career, if it had made headlines, uh, and it would have been tabloid headlines, not New York Times headlines, right. uh, it would have cost me most of my career because radio wouldn't have played me. Well, look at Holly Dunn in country music. I mean, yeah. um, once that's out, you can't close that door. Hmm. And... So the, the Village Voice outed me in 76, I think. But the rest of the press was very nice about it and didn't pick it up. And so I got to keep my cabaret card. I got to keep touring. I got to go to various countries that wouldn't have allowed me in. And we forget now what a what an anathema it was. I don't, I don't know if that's the right word, but to be a homosexual, as we said then, or a lesbian in the 70s, let alone the 60s, made you subject to a lobotomy, you know? Hmm. Left you subject to arrest, left you subject to losing the ability to record because there was a morals clause. So when I started living with Pat, my wife, in 89, one of the first things I realized was that this relationship was going to be a forever relationship and I could not have it be hidden. And I was all set to come out then, but Irvishy Vade from the 
what was then the Gay and Lesbian Task Force, urged me to wait until my next album. And she quoted the gay teen statistics for suicide, that three in 10 teenage suicides were because they thought they might be gay. Might be. Hmm. Not even wow. were. And she convinced me to wait. So when I came out, it was, uh, I guess, at the same time as uh, Melissa Etheridge and uh, Ellen and everybody else, just a bunch of us made a concerted effort to put as much into the press as we could. And I, th I think that was good, but I, I don't know that that part affected my writing so much as just Nashville, because to me, breaking silence uh, is one of the best things I've done. And the album that I was trying to live up to with this album, as a songwriter uh, and a singer, yeah. And breaking silence for me is very much Nashville and what I learned from Kai Fleming as a co-writer and from living with Kai. Mm. Um, a lot of those things like Tattoo, which was after we were no longer living together, but just being able to, to structure a song. Um, Tattoo was written in Nashville, and for me, it's, it's a very Nashville song, the way that it's set up. It tells a story. Her new name was tattooed to her wrist it was longer than the old one Sealed in the silence with a fist This night will be a cold one Centuries live in her eyes Destiny laughs over Jack Funny that you cite some people's lives because I had always wanted to to beat Jesse or come close. Huh. That was my hallmark. <laughs> and uh, Kai and I had visited a friend who was, who was suicidal. And I, re I remember we were sitting in a hotel room and one of us said, some people's lives just wind down, you know, mm. like, like a clock. And Kai said to me, one day they stop. And I said, that's all they've got. And we were off and running. Wow. And if you look at the chord structure of that song, it's very similar to Jesse. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Interesting how a conversation just winds up being a song sometimes. Mm, happens a <laughs> lot, though. Yeah. yeah. Um, now I've heard that you have a, a sign in your workspace that says, do not be held hostage by your legacy. Mm. When you talk about a, a quote-unquote legacy artist, which is, you know, a whole a loaded term, but... A much nicer way than saying old, yes. <laughs> right. When you think about that... You think about very much how that person, what they have contributed to, um, to music or mm. to culture, or or in what ways they have um, influenced um, those who have uh, come after them. But what I find very interesting about your new record is, you know, you have a song like Nina, where you're paying tribute to Nina Simone. But at the same time, when I listen to Resist. You know, I can hear bits of maybe artists like Ani DeFranco. Uh, I don't know if any of that is conscious, but, you know, I, I hear bits where you can kind of pick out and say, oh, well, there's some interesting oh, yeah. influences that that maybe Janice is kind of absorbed. And I think we often don't think of, quote unquote, legacy artists as people who are also absorbing things. It's a two way street that inspiration goes to the younger generation and also to an artist who's who's been at it for a while. Um 
So rather than kind of ending on the on the the note of okay, well let's put your contributions in a box here. I'd love to hear about for you as a writer what you're absorbing, what excites you um, about other younger writers that are coming up. Well, uh, when I heard "Not a Pretty Girl," you know Ani's first, I guess mainstream album, you might call it. I wrote. I actually wrote to her and I said, "I think you may be about to live my career." <laughs> um, give me a holler if you ever want to talk. I think that um, people like me listen to everything from Pink to Arctic Monkeys. Uh, so you're going to hear that in there. And some U2 is probably in there. A fair amount of uh, Elton John, David Bowie, my hero, uh, Wild is the Wind, which I thought next to Nina's version just stood right up to it and mm. smacked it upside the head and said, I'm here too. You know, that's a hard thing to do. Yeah. Um, I think you hear all of that in something like Resist, plus Randy's influences, my my co-producer and arranger, because Randy is coming out of a lot of Brazil and a lot of South America and a lot of uh, accordion and a lot of Hispanic music. I think there's I'm, I think that you have a choice to make when you get older as an artist, particularly if you're a performer. And that is, are you going to be a nostalgia act? Which, there's nothing wrong with that. You can make a living touring and re-recording your old material and putting it out in different ways. And you can, maybe sometimes some people decide to go with the symphonic route because it pays well. Uh, and it's fun to work with an orchestra. Other people decide to go the nightclub route or the Vegas route or the club route. There's all different choices there if you just want to take the pressure off. And then there's the choice of, I did a lot and I can stand on that, but I'm also still really curious about what else can I do. Hmm. And I fall into that category. Um, I think it's in some ways an easier route and in some ways a lot harder. It, yeah. it wouldn't occur to me to stop. It's like, it's like talking about my last solo studio album. I keep insisting that people phrase it the way you did, last solo studio album, because I don't know that I'm not going to cut an album with a jazz artist. I don't know that I'm mm. not going to cut an album of my songs with some other artist. I don't know. I'm certainly going to keep doing projects with other artists because I love doing projects with other artists. Um, I can't imagine not writing, but not planning to ever do another solo studio album takes the pressure off. Ah, hmm. right. Yeah. It means yeah. that I don't have to sit there staring at that whiteboard every day <laughs> and telling myself I don't have to live up to my legacy because I've already created it. Mm. Right. Takes a huge pressure off. Yeah. Um, mm. When I go on tour, I can choose just the best songs. I don't have to choose the songs that the record company wants. Mm, I don't have to right. choose only the songs from the new album. The pressure on, an, on a young artist to do that, it's unbelievable. Yeah, I, I yeah. took off all that pressure. Well, the new record is The Light at the End of the Line. It is uh, full of some fantastic songs. You are definitely uh, not someone who is resting on the laurels of your previous accomplishments. <laughs> These are uh, an, an incredible 
uh, body of songs here. And we just appreciate uh, you, Janice, for taking some time to chat with us today and give us a little insight into the new record and, and hit some of the highlights of an amazing career. And um, we, we really appreciate it. Thank you. I, I love that we got to talk about songwriting for an hour. Good questions, gentlemen. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting other potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. And of course, nothing beats a personal recommendation. Perhaps take a moment right now to text or email one friend who you think would appreciate what we do and send them a link to our show, letting them know how much you enjoy it. As a reminder, you can sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and find out how to help support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can follow us on social media by searching for Songcraft Conversations on Instagram and Songcraft Show on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.